And so I go track this, this my my bride down, and she's at a dance, at at, at the clubhouse. There's a Valentine's Day dance, and I t- ask her outside to go for a walk. And there's a big full moon. You know, I'm setting the scene like like it's a Hollywood thing. And I'm telling what it was really like this. It's a full moon, and I'm asking her to get married outside in NA clubhouse. <laughs> Under a full moon, you know, with, with like a year clean or something. You know, that's how it went. Oh, and she said yes. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. On today's episode of the Share Podcast, we have Dr. Harold Jonas joining us on the show. And Dr. Jonas has extensive experience with web development and award-winning app development since 1999. He's responsible for the concept, design, and launch of multiple directories serving the addiction and recovery community, including Sober.com, RecoveryRoommates.com, and InterventionStrategies.com, just to name a few. Two of his most recent apps for the addiction and recovery space received national recognition and prestigious awards. Today, Dr. Jonas shares his story with us. And what you'll find in his story is it's a little more lighthearted than some of the other stories we've had. He doesn't go so much into details about the war stories. What we do is we spend quite a bit of time discussing his recovery. So let's dive into Dr. Jonas' story. But first, since this is the first episode of 2017, I just want to wish all the Share Podcast fans out there a Happy New Year's. It warms my heart so much to see so many people posting in the Share Podcast private accountability group the success they had this year in staying clean and sober another New Year's, or in some cases, for the first time in a very long time. It's amazing to see the progress that so many people have made, and we do this together. I was not able to do this alone. I need my friends in the fellowship, in my home group, in the meetings, on the Facebook group, all the listeners, my guests, the family that we have managed to put together is nothing short of a miracle. For me, 2016 was a tough year. It was a lot of work, and there's no way I could have done it without all of you, and certainly not without recovery and my higher power. So once again, Happy New Year's and HP baby to all you guys. I love you all. God bless. And now on to the show. But first, if you would like to know the best way to show your support for the Share Podcast, here are a few ways you can help. First, go to www.thesharepodcast.com, and there you can sign up for our free newsletter, which will let you know every time a new episode of the Share Podcast comes out. You can leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. If you would like to know other places that you can listen to the Share Podcast, you can listen to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. If you would like to donate to the Share Podcast, you can do so via PayPal, or you can support us on Patreon. We have a thriving Facebook group that grows daily and has massive participation. Again, it's a private group, so if you would like to discuss recovery, share your experience, strength, and hope, help others or lean on others for support, be sure to join the Facebook private group. And all of this information can be found on the website. So go to the website, and there you will find all the information that you need to help support the show. So now a quick message from our sponsors, and on to the show. 
SoberNation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction, as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.SoberNation.com. Sober Nation is putting recovery on the map. Hey Jonas, thanks for joining us. Hey, Omar. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate the invitation. My pleasure. I'm excited to have you on the show today. How are you feeling? Um, I'm still pretty tired. Everything in my body hurts from uh, preparing for the storm. As, as I just was sharing prior to our starting, you know, I'm in South Florida where the Category 4 uh, Matthew is getting ready to visit here any minute. So um, we're all sitting tight and praying that um, things are going to be okay when we wake up in the morning. Oh, man, that is nerve-wracking and terrifying, and ugh, I feel for you, man. I feel for you. Let, let's hope everything comes out beautifully. Yeah, we're all safe. I got um, my, my, my sister lives here down in one of her houses, my daughter, you know, so we're all hunkered down. We're shuttered up and, um, you know, plenty of food and snacks and generators and gas and the whole deal. You know, we've been through this with Wilma, you know, 10 years ago, so we're, we're, not, we're not new. We're not rookies anymore. I got you. I got you. Okay, well, now you guys are prepared. All right, so let's get started. So folks, today we have Dr. Harold Jonas joining us on the Share Podcast. His is a powerful story of transformation from this former heroin addict who turned his life around, got his PhD, and is now a top tech entrepreneur using mobile technology to battle the growing opioid addiction epidemic. Does that sound about right, Jonas? That's pretty good. Nice summary. Thank you. All right. So let's dive right in. First of all, Jonas, take us into your normal daily routine, including recovery. Well, again, when, when, when you're in recovery and what I learned um, is, is that you have to make the same decision every morning that no matter what happens during the course of a day, I'm not going to use no matter what. So I still have that conscious contact with a power greater than myself that I choose to call God and make that same decision in the third step. You know, it's like, no, I made a decision. I'm going to turn my will, my life over. And that's how it rolls. So, um, you know, that's basic stuff. And what I've learned in recovery is that if we don't move away from the basics, we never have to ever struggle to go back to them. Right. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about how you maintain your spiritual condition on a daily basis. Well, again, it starts in that morning prayer, uh, and then I, I, when I'm when I'm doing my workout and exercising, because as we age, we have to work a little harder to get moving in the morning. Uh, I'm doing yoga, I'm doing stretches, and I'm I'm getting a conscious contact through meditation um, to to get that spiritual kind of fitness in place to meet the challenges of the day. And there are many throughout the day, um, since the days are a lot longer. Again, the older we get, the less we seem to sleep or need sleep. So, you know, when you're working on five hours, there's a lot of conscious contact going on. Oh, yeah, no, for sure, for sure. So um, how much clean time do you have, and when is your anniversary date? Well, it's interesting that you ask. I'm coming up on an anniversary here on November 1st. So many years ago, in a land far, far away <laughs> called, Camden, called Camden, New Jersey, um, I, I had a stranger approach me. Uh, can I say that loosely because I hadn't seen this person who happened to be my father uh, track me down and find me. Uh, and this was in 
1987. And, and he found me where I was, uh, my last place of uh, employment there in, in that area of the country. And uh, ironically, he had been hanging out in Costa Rica for many, many years prior to his arrival, finding me in Camden and um, offered me an opportunity to come to Florida where he had relocated. Uh, and so and that was then. And I, I finally got off the plane in like mid-October, say, October 12, 15, 1987 and um, went into a treatment center. And, you know, I don't know what day it was. So I just count November 1st, 1987 as my um, uh, date of recovery. Wow. So we're talking how many years now? Uh, I think that makes 29 coming up. Wow. Unbelievable, man. So with 29 years coming up, do you still go to regular meetings? Do you have a regular meeting you go to? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, even like I said, the basics are the basics. And, and I've been going to the same home group since 1987, well, early 88. I go to one meeting a week, um, and that is my home group since, like, gosh, I since I had 20... Seven years clean because I switched my um, we, we switched my work schedule to be evenings, so there wasn't any day meetings in my area, and and we started one, and I was a participant in starting a day meeting, and then uh, the Saturday night evening basic text group is the one I go to, and have been for many many years, um, and and it's real simple. We read out of the book, and you know everything else is just opinions because the answers can be found in the text and literature, as we all know. Absolutely, absolutely. So when did the whole idea of coming up with this opioid addiction mobile application, so how, what, what is, tell us a little bit about your mobile app. Okay, well, there's some, there's some history behind that, I, and I'll, I'll just talk as fast as I can, and you interrupt me if I'm taking up too much time. So I started Supportive Housing in 1995, which means, you know, I didn't want to do a true halfway house because I don't really believe in the rules. There's plenty of rules in society. And so I set it up to where there was a lot of autonomy, and we called it a recovery residence, and gave people a lot of guidelines to work with. And, and what happens in places like that is people have a tendency to be noncompliant, and they start using again because, again, we're dealing with people in early recovery who, who are addicts. Right. So um, being in, in the, in the hu human services and in healthcare and, and basically in the field as an addictions counselor, um, we needed a place to refer them because we didn't want them on the street because that's the whole idea is to help them stay off the street. So I started an electronic directory in 1999. I started programming it with a team. I called it SoberHouses.com. It was an, it grew a national directory of supportive housing throughout the country because then people could find you know additional places to go because there was no print directory as far as I could find. So I started the Sober Houses site, and it grew and morphed into a full continuum of care. And I, I was it started an acquisition tear of, of domain names. I got Sober.com under my control, and we morphed this site into something big and, 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 and expansive. Uh, and again, we were running on an advertising model. Um, so I still operate Sober.com today. That's a good 15-year run of operating uh, an online directory for the best clinical and financial fit. So now to drive traffic, you know, there's a number of ways to drive traffic to your website. Um, and as a clinician, I decided to do online counseling and online coaching back in 2004. Got it online 2005 and started training recovery coaches way back then, 2006, driving traffic, providing free coaching to anybody that wanted it as an experiment. Now, again, we're working with, you know, modems back then at 288 and 56.6. Yeah, I so remember that. It, it, 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I was really ahead of the curve here, like me, you know, trying to put this in play um, to drive traffic and get people to come on board to do Internet based services, which was still before telehealth was what it has become and morphed into. So we called it sober systems. And, and then as again, the evolution of business and the technology and everything moving very, very go fast and watching people come out with iPhones and use iPhones to text and talk to each other. I said, well, I got to make this thing mobile um, because I'm, I'm way behind. They're not even using desktops or a joke. Laptops are already too bulky. Then they you know, started with phones. So we went mobile in 2012 with Sober Systems and it morphed it into um, a, a platform that is basically able to be adapted to any medical or behavioral health diagnosis to treat and hold people accountable, and we call it the FlexDeck. And Sober Systems is the flagship product that goes under that you know basic technological platform. So that's how it's certainly evolved to be where it is now. Um, the opioid challenge um, that you speak of in the question came from SAMHSA. Uh, our government here in the states, you know, is a big conglomerate of different agencies, but SAMHSA is the one that regulates all the money. And um, they put out a, a contest to, to get an app in place to deal with the opioid epidemic. And so I adapted the flex stack to meet the standards of the rules of the contest and submitted it. And we were, again, uh, named first prize, grand prize winner of the contest. Um, with the mat edition. So they wanted something that was going to be available uh, for people on medication, people that are still taking methadone, people still taking suboxone to deal with their opioid issues until they choose or maybe not to choose to get off it, which is not, you know, not what the app is really for. It's, it's really an accountability app to give them the support and the opportunity to, to be able to have um, people in their life like a recovery coach uh, to, to help them prevent relapse and going off that proverbial cliff by not taking their medicine. Right. Now, so, is there a cost for, for the app? No, no, no. The, the app is free. Okay. No, listen to this concept. We, we, I, I figured out a way, right, to, to train coaches for free in exchange for an internship of six months. They're going to provide free coaching and free professional services to anybody that wants to use this app, which is also a free download. So all they have to do is fill out the questionnaire on the app on a daily basis and qualify for rewards, which is free coaching. And if they do it long enough, they can to become free training to become a coach so they can start to earn a living. Um, and everybody wins. You know, that's the whole deal is that even part of this process here is to attract users to the app to let people know that there is a free tool out there that they can get free services from. And all they got to do is download it, put it on their phone and use it and then click a button and then they're going to be able to talk to a live recovery coach. So this app, the FlexDeck? Fle Matt Edition. FlexDeck Matt Edition. FlexDeck Matt Edition. And so any addict gets in this app. It's accountability app. And you fill out every day a questionnaire. Correct. Yep. And then after X amount of time or after filling out X amount of these questionnaires. Same questions every day, just like the steps. They don't change. The questions are, did you, did you use today? Did you take your medicine? Blah, 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 blah. There's like a half a dozen questions. And they click yes, 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 yes. And they earn points. And they trade the points in for free coaching. Okay. And so then they get the free coaching. And then they themselves can learn to be coaches too? Absolutely. They can click another button and get, you want to get trained and we'll train them. 
All online. Everything's online. Everything's on their phone. That is fantastic and all for free. All for free? Well, they already paid the price. Come on. They already paid a big price. Man. And this is a great way for people to do so much, especially in early recovery, because there's a lot of people that once they, they kind of get on that pink cloud, oh, you know, they get sober and they get clean and they get on the pink cloud and it's like, what can I do? You know, yep. I want to get I want to get involved, man. Yep. You know, and they want to start their own meetings and they want to open up a rehab center and they want to They want to be a therapist. Yeah, they want to be a therapist, right? Big lofty goals, right? And then, you know, to be a therapist like, "Oh man, I got to go to school." Right. Ooh, you know, so this yep. is a great way to get involved. You're participating in your own recovery and then quickly you can also through this app become a therapist. I love it. I think this is great. So all I'm looking for now is I'm putting out a video, basically a PowerPoint. I'm uh-huh. looking for cor- corporate sponsors to help underwrite this. Got it. The people that do the medication manufacturing that make Suboxone, the people that make Methadone, the people that make Narcan, you know, those are the people that can help assist by, you know, sponsoring the, the users of the app and the coaches so we can really make a dent and move the needle and reduce opioid addiction and overdoses. That's the most critical thing because where I'm at, people are dying every day, and, that, and that's just not an unusual occurrence across the country because, you know, they're lacing the heroin up here with, with um, fentanyl. Oh, God. And, and, and dude, man, they're, they're, dropping, they're dropping like flies, like yeah. 8 to 10 people a day. There was one place they did this crazy drug. It was like they said they described it like the walking dead. All these people were walking around, like bumping into each other. I'm not sure if it was from the heroin that they were doing or they were using um, um, bath salts or whatever. But it was just an insane kind of episode in this one community. It was just like a TV show, they said. So it's it's bad. It's 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 a significant problem. No, I don't use numbers and statistics. Because, you know, you can skew them and make them say whatever you want. All we do know evidence-wise is that, you know, every police call in my community that goes out, they tell us it's a $10,000 ride for the truck, the officers, and the paramedics to go rescue an overdose. Got it. Got it. Okay. All right. And how long has the app been out? No, it'll be rolling out November 1st, right around my anniversary. I'm going to a conference to present it. It's the American Association for the Treatment of Opioid Dependence. Big conference here. So we're going to get my award uh, there, and I'm going to do a 20-minute presentation on the features of the app. You know, and, and, and we're going to videotape it and put it up on the website so people can look at it as a reference and get a clear idea of what we're trying to accomplish. And again, we're just trying to move the needle. We're not going to extinguish this problem with an app. We're going to like maybe make a dent, which is the realistic kind of goal. Yes. Well, any help is welcome. I mean, it, like you were saying, it's such a horrific epidemic, and it's just getting worse and worse. Um, the first time I heard about them lacing heroin with fentanyl, I just thought, wow, they're just a recipe for disaster on a massive level. Yeah, it's huge. And then, wait, I don't know if you heard about the cow fentanyl down there, but you know, the joke on the street is like, you know, when you're using drugs like that and you're using heroin, it's like, dude, man, th- you know, this this could stop an elephant. You know, this stuff is so powerful, it could stop an elephant. And what do you think they found? They found the elephant tranquilizer called carfentanil, which is like this derivative. And it's it, literally two milligrams of this stuff stops a 2,000-pound elephant. Right? Oh. It puts, so they're taking drop, they're lacing the heroin with this stuff. They're not even getting the syringe out of their out of their vein before they're dead. 
and, and when people go out and get hit with Narcan on this stuff, it sometimes is taking two or three doses of Narcan to wake them up. You know, I mean, that's and, and it's just absolutely amazing because, you know, what happens with an opioid overdose is you have no recollection of what happened. You have none at all. There's no imprint in your brain that says you overdosed and you better not do it again because you wake up from an overdose from Narcan and you wake up and go get more. Well, uh, you know, here's what I don't understand. If it's something that's so powerful and it kills people, it would it behooves me to imagine that, well, I don't know if drug dealers are just that ridiculously stupid. But if you're killing your customer base, what benefit is in that? I don't, I don't, I don't get that. And then you can get into all those government con- conspiracies, right? Do you remember all those? That they're doing this just to thin the population? And, and it's all run by the DEA? I mean, just crazy stuff that you hear on the street? Oh, man. The logic of anybody putting a strange substance like that in their body goes without saying is crazy. It's totally irrational. You're buying it from somebody who's not a certified pharmacist, and they're saying, dude, this is this is great. It'll take care of business. And, and you just say, oh, yeah, okay, fine. And then you go into the bathroom at Dunkin' Donuts, and you don't come out. Correct. You know, that's what's going on. Okay. Well, not for nothing. It may be a little, you know, paranoia or a conspiracy theory or whatever you want to say that it is. It does make sense, because why would anyone do something like this? It just, it, it makes no sense. No, no. But then again, either does addiction, so to speak, you know. No, no. So it's like, you know, it's, it's, I, I hear you and I agree. It, you know, you don't, and you don't say, oh, you had a guy down the street, let me go get you some, or let's go get some together and, and, and we'll do it. And, 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 you know, and now there's Narcan stuff. Well, it's now, now Oxone. They're like, p- people are using that as an enabling system to stay actively using because, you know, they carry it around. You can almost get it on the street and, and you know, you can basically, it's like Pulp Fiction, you know, right, where, where, right. <laughs> you OD and then you, you know, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Oh, your friend has an arcade. Uh-huh. Who's got the naloxone? And then, and then that's what they're doing to each other. Just it, it's, it's so much different than when I was out there. And again, it's been th- almost 30 years since I was on the street running around doing that. And it was certainly nothing like this. No, no. Nothing like this. There was, there was some camaraderie around uh, people in galleries doing what we were doing, you know, yeah. looking out for each other. Now it's like, you know, doggy dog in a lot of ways. Correct, correct. Well, you know what? I think we've gotten the, the gist of, uh, you know, what your app is supposed to do and what it's hoping to do. And, uh, you know, for those of us listening out there, we certainly hope it makes the kind of impact that it needs to make um, moving forward starting November 1st. Uh, but, Let's go back in time now. Let's talk about those 30 years back where you were out there gunning and running. Tell us a little bit about the first time you drank or used drugs and, more importantly, how they made you feel. In my home growing up, uh, alcohol was the prevalent chemical, and um, my father was one to share. A very generous guy uh, in many areas of his life, including his alcohol um, and so the, the, the tradition was that he would make us a, a highball. That's what they called them back then uh, in, in uh-huh. the 60s for New Year's Eve. Now, this was I was still single digits, like, you know, eight or nine years old. And we would get a highball. And um, I think it was VO. And but I don't even know. All I know is that it was foul. It was horrible. It was foul. And I didn't really drink it. It made me sick. <laughs> and my sister drank it. See, my older sister drank mine and hers. And uh, ironically, she's not an addict. Um, I, I was introduced to marijuana at, at 12 years old, and, and then I fit in my family because everybody was using a chemical but me. So 
I ran crazy with marijuana, you know, for many, many years up until the fact that, you know, towards the end of my addiction, I really couldn't use it without being cuckoo. Um, I, I found myself um, going through um, the, the usual gamut of experimentation in adolescence. You know, marijuana led to the opportunity to use every other drug that was ever coming down the street. <clears throat> and then those I went looking for on other streets. Um, so there's that whole range, you know, from psychedelics to amphetamines to barbiturates and, and um, settled on a, a nice little habit of, of um, uh, alcohol, which I did learn to drink subsequently later on, alcohol, marijuana and cocaine uh, until some things happened in my life at like age, I don't know, 27, 28. My marriage came apart and um, everything else came apart thereafter, after like having two children. And I uh, was introduced to opiates earlier from a wreck. I had a, a terrible uh, accident um, <laughs> that happened as a result of using drugs at college. I, I severed one of my fingers off on a saw. So oh. I, I was using all kinds of drugs and, and cut actually three of my fingers, but one of them I lost. And um, I was introduced to, to morphine and I got off of morphine in the hospital and switched to marijuana and they were like thrilled. Everybody was thrilled that I said, oh yeah, right. I'm going to smoke pot instead for the pain, which was very, very effective by the way, because I wasn't going to get hooked on, on, on heroin, you know, or on or morphine and, and Talwin and all the other opiates that were around. So my parents got me pot, which is very open-minded of them. They gave my friend money and they got me, got me pot and I smoked pot, you know, for the my recuperation. So Anyway, when this episode happened in 2728, the, the uh, introduction to Percocet and then to, to Dilaudid was an easy segue. And from 28 to 33, I did nothing but deteriorate from a nice suburban business person with a failing marriage and two young kids to living on the street on a cardboard box shooting dope for a living. Oh, wow. 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 Okay. So I think we, we might've fast forwarded too much here because you know, what I normally do right after I asked the first question was, you know, how old you were the first time you drank or used drugs is from there, we segue into your story. So you would tell your story the same way you would at a meeting, like your, um, if you were a speaker. Yeah. Well, you got the most of it because when I go, and I don't want to be disrespectful to your concept, I usually summarize it in that quick amount of time because I really want to talk about what recovery has to offer. Okay, well, then let's let's dive into that. You know, we're all qualified to be there on whatever nonsense <laughs> we put ourselves through. And, and, and it's it's it wasn't pretty, obviously, to live on a car. But, you know, I went from the park bench to Park Avenue, so to speak, in terms of my – and that all came from recovery. I mean, that's really what life is about is when you – when, when for me, getting off of that airplane and never looking back, um, the 20 years I used and, and, and self-destructed to get there is as colorful as the next person. Some of it's really pretty. Some of it's really ugly. Some of it's just what it is. You know, it's right. So what was what was the rock bottom moment that drove you into recovery? I started to look for change in 1985. Um, the guy that turned me on to the heroin and, and the Percocets and the Dilaudids right at that same critical episode at in, in, in age 28 came to me. He was He's my friend I grew up with and used with. He showed up in, in, in my business and he said, look, I, I, I just got out of treatment and um, I want you to meet me at this address. We're going to go to a meeting because he knew I was still using. He had... He became a physician and got caught nodding out on the elevator with his with his um, anesthesia bag in the morning. 
<laughs> you know, and, yeah. And, and apparently he had many run-ins with his superiors until they finally, you know, gave him the ultimatum in, in 85 to do this or lose his, his license. He was a new doc and he was struggling as an addict. He'd been shooting dope for years. I don't know how he got through med school. Um, so anyway, I go to this meeting and, and he doesn't show up. He doesn't create it. I went into the meeting thinking he'll come in late or something. Never came at all. I sat through the meeting. I had just gotten on, gotten on my first methadone clinic. And I'm like thinking this is the best thing since sliced bread. I didn't chase any dope all day. And, and I, I didn't shoot any dope all day. And this is great. And so at the end of the meeting, they said, anybody have anything to say or anything you want to share? And I said, oh, yeah. I, I just said just like that. I didn't shoot any dope today. I got on methadone. They said, some dude takes me he side and he says, come back when you're clean. Oh, oh my God. Come back. When, you know what? Okay, this is 1985. Two years later. Two years I was out. I went, I got such, and I got I got blown out of the water. I got blown out of the water. I don't know who that guy was, but I remember those words echoing in my head to this day. And it took two more years of, of being out there before I, I crawled back and got into, reintroduced to recovery in 12 steps when I got into treatment. And I never forgot that because that's one of the reasons I'm very supportive of anybody that's doing anything for themselves to improve the quality of their life. I don't care what it is. Of course. So then two years go by, and I'm assuming you're still doing tons of opioids. I don't get anything I can get my hands on. I mean, we're, we're running screw. Well, I don't want to incriminate myself, but we're doing the things we need to do to get high. Okay? We'll leave it at that. You know, yeah, yeah, ways yeah. and means to get more. All that's going on in my life, you know, in and out of jail, in and out of petty crime, in and out of stu- just, just deterioration of values and deterioration of care and concern to whether I lived or not. Just, you know... A total uh, uh, person of inadequacy, and and I couldn't even do anything right. I failed at marriage, failed at business, failed at being a parent, full of shame, full of guilt, and and, and just full of hopelessness. So, so then, so then, two years go by. Now you've still got a resentment for the guy who said to you, you know, come back when you're clean, but you still managed to crawl into. Was it rehab or a 12-step No, meeting? when I got off the plane, when my father offered to bring me to Florida, I went to a treatment center and got reintroduced to 12-step recovery through the treatment centers. Well, I went to four of them in a row from mid-October right on through the end of January or February, something like that. You know, I was in an extended kind of model of, of treatment with different, more intensities and different places, you know, along that route. Yeah, and I can only imagine that because I mean I've been going to meetings for years too, and you know especially when you're new and you have any sort of resentment, whatever issues you have with twelve step recovery. What was that like when you first came back in? I mean, were were you pissed? Were you vocal about it? Did you kind of like go, "Hey, man, like why why would I be treated like this?" Um, I, I asked a lot of questions, and 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 I didn't have you know I didn't I didn't really hold on to that. I was angry at life and angry at myself for many other reasons. So I had plenty of other anger issues going on for a long, long time. You know, I, I smoked cigarettes for like 25 years, it seems. No, let's see. I've been off of cigarettes almost eight years, something like that. So finally, you know, I started to love myself a lot more. Um, so it, 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 did, it did hold on to that, and, but not to the point where I would ever use it as an exclusionary because they told me. Right to look at the similarities and not the differences. So and 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 so that was important for me to stay with. 
Um, and I didn't go looking for that guy. He was in New Jersey and I was in Florida. So I like moved on. But again, I use that as fuel for like this app. And, and, and as a professional, again, my, my agenda for people is irrelevant compared to what their agenda is for them. And, um, you know, that's how I view this. So medica- medication-assisted treatment is real. Medication-assisted treatment is, is, is saturating meetings throughout um, the area I'm in. Um, some people are more comfortable talking about it than others. Most of them hide it, which is really sad um, because there's still a lot of ignorant people in the rooms that say, come back when you're clean. And that's why I really wanted to kind of park on that for a minute, because this happens, right? You have, and and, I mean, the only requirement for membership is the desire to stop using. It doesn't say you have to be clean anywhere. And and wait, you're taking medication prescribed by a professional, no different than Prozac and no different than a vitamin from GNC that is self-prescribed by people who want to, like, you know, do steroids. So, you know, to me, it's just a bunch of crap. They're, they're there because they want to improve the quality of their life, and this is an avenue they're exploring. And if they're on Suboxone or they're on Methadone or they're on Naltrexone, I mean, good for them. They're there. They're, they earn their seat yeah. like everybody else. Absolutely. Because let me tell you a, a couple of things, right? Now, because I've got a buddy of mine who just finished kicking, you know, an opiate addiction straight up. Okay. He's, he just locked himself in his backyard for two That'll weeks do it. and just sweated and vomited and, and skin crawling and oh, yeah. itching and the most. Dude, your pubic hair hurts. Your, your nails on your toes hurt. I mean, like, you know, it's, it's just like that kind of phenomena. But prior to that, he spent 10 years taking suboxone good wow that's a pretty long run exactly so i mean the reason why i want to kind of stick you know just before we move on here is that i think it's so important that people listening to this right now if you go to a meeting or if you talk to someone and somebody judges you or takes your inventory get up and go to another meeting you know because it's not about the message it's purely the messenger that's you know, destroying any hopes that people have. You know, you come in already with this, you know, we're egomaniacs with an inferiority complex. So you you come in terrified, but you also have your ego, right? Because that's what has kept you out there using for all these years. The first, all you need is somebody to tell you something that's off base and, oh, I don't need this. I'm out of here, right? And then for you, two years. I mean, who's to say that... From that meeting, somebody would have said, you're home, brother. You're home. Just come on in. Sit down. We'll walk you through this. This could have saved you two years of misery. And God only knows it could have killed you. Uh, well, in, in, in the interim, I, you know, I picked up hepatitis, you know, and who knows what else I got. I don't have HIV, which is very fortunate because I was running around with some really crazy, shady people doing really crazy, shady stuff. So I got right. unfortunate that I only got diagnosed with hepatitis, which I didn't even know I had until I had an episode right before I was getting married here in recovery in 1989. Um, and I got laid out with like an amazing, amazing, like on near hospitalization of hepatitis, uh, wow. which of course has morphed into hepatitis C. Um, so, you know, I'm dealing with that, you know, as we age and so forth. But I definitely agree that there's a lot of people that, you know, still think that if you're taking lithium, you're not clean. 
So, you know, there's some real close, and, and ironically, you know, it talks about open-mindedness in the freaking preamble. It says, you know, honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness, and here they are, a bunch of people are like, if you're not abstinent, you're not really a member. I'm like, you know what? You need to sit down. You need to sit down and shut up, because you just haven't read anything in this book yet. And I don't, you want to get me started on that? I get really impassioned. No, buddy, keep going. I'm, yeah. <laughs> you have the floor yeah. here. Because it's, listen, my Facebook group, all right, I have a... Um, the share private Facebook group is loaded with these people, right? They're they're always posting in there about, oh man, I went to a meeting last night and so and so pissed me off, or somebody took my inventory, or somebody pointed out, you know, is that going against their traditions? You know, it's like, why don't you just sit there and shut the fuck up and mind your own business? Yeah, uh, pretty much. Look, you're sitting in a room with a hundred with a hundred of the most self centered people in the whole world. You know, come on, <laughs> shut up. I remember I went home one one day early in recovery and somebody made a comment to me and I was furious, furious. And uh, my wife at the time, who is now my ex-wife, she looks at me and she goes, okay, so you're upset, right? I'm like, yeah, of course I'm upset. This is ridiculous. He goes, isn't the guy a drug addict? And I go, yeah. Okay, so, I mean, seriously, I mean, why would you take that so seriously? And it, obviously, she's not in a program, so she's, she looks at things from a normal person's perspective. She's not looking at it from the addict who's got a chip on his shoulder yeah. who will take anything, any excuse to go off the rails. You know, I, it, it's, this is just, for nothing else, it's just a cautionary tale that this kind of shit happens we're all human beings we're all just garden variety drug addicts trying to get clean one day at a time and sometimes we say shit that we shouldn't say period no do not take it personally do not go out and use over it you know talk to somebody else go to a different meeting try something else there's this what, what are the other ones now there's you can go to a treatment center you can go to i think it's what is the other there's a few other things different pathways uh, there's that whole faith, there's faith-based work, there's celebrate recovery, there's smart recovery, there's NA, there's AA, there's CA. Uh, it, it just keep trying to find the pathway that fits and, and a home group that people are going to be open-minded truly and not like, you know, and there's always going to be somebody that's opinionated and judgmental. That's just life, you know. I mean, we call we just, there's just assholes in the world, and that's just what it is. You just learn to, you know, just like you did when you were using, you stayed away from people like that. Correct. It's no different. It's no different. No, no. You, when you're out there and somebody, you know, you knocked you down and took your drugs and your your set of works, you never go back to that corner. You went somewhere else. Absolutely, we're the most resilient beasts out there. Resilient doesn't matter what anybody says to us. We're not going to stop using. That's for sure. Why wouldn't we apply the same sort of tenacity when we're trying to get clean and sober? Well, that's what they said. Ten percent of you, if you put ten percent into your recovery, you put a hundred percent into using. You will not only get better, you'll stay better, and you'll have a happy, productive life. Period. Absolutely. Ten yep. percent. No. <laughs> All right. So then, walk us through your first year of sobriety. Well, um, let's see. I was in a psychiatric hospital, right? And 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 um. I asked them, I wanted to go into this, they had those little quiet rooms, and I said, I want to quit smoking cigarettes right now, right, I want to stop. And they said, oh, no, no, you don't want to do that. You, you, one thing at a time. Uh, I'm like, what, what are you, I'm in a hospital. We're all, if I don't have any cigarettes, I can't smoke, it'll be fine. No, 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 because they didn't want to have to work that hard, right. the slackers. Yeah, so anyway, you know, 
they didn't have any clue on how to deal with me. So I'm standing at the fence, you know, like I'm I'm in, in that World War II movie. What the hell was the name of that? Was Steve McQueen? The Great Escape. Okay. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to jump this fence and I'm going to run and I'm going to go and run and I'm not done and da 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 and, and there was this moment of clarity that happened to me and I'm standing at the fence and I'm getting ready to go and, and I don't know. I don't know if I looked up or I looked out. I just turned around and went back inside and um, that was it. It was over. It was just it was just over about whether I was going to use or not use or stay or go. It, it just whatever that, that obsession was lifted at that moment. And I went back inside, you know, a locked psychiatric hospital. I thought I was Jack Nicholson and one flew over to Cooper's Nest. And, and, and I'm in there and, I, and, and I'm dealing with this stuff in and I never look back. I never looked back. So I had this this defining moment of early recovery and, and, and awareness. And I got guided in my first year through outside help from meetings to, to move into the direction of, of human services and to work on going back to school and being a therapist, which which subsequently, you know, I went and enrolled in graduate school for my master's right, right early on because I made a decision that this is what I was going to do. This was it. And there was nothing that was going to deter that. Now, I had three kids in New Jersey that were under eight years old. I had an ex-wife. I had a, an armload of warrants and debt up my ass. And um, I'm, here I am enrolling in graduate school and um, determined to, um, you know, carry a message of, of, of hope, of, of change. So it was a really good fit for me. And um, I met this beautiful, lovely woman who I married, who is, you know, my soulmate. And we we carried on now. We're married 27 years. Wow. Wow. So basically, yeah, your entire sobriety. Pretty much. I mean, I met her. I had about five months. And um, she had she 13 stepped me, which <laughs> took about it took about 20 years for her to admit that out loud. You know? you know, it's a really great story. And, and Tell so, us. Well, I went to a meeting and there was this, this, this woman that shared her story, you know, how people do. And I went up to her afterwards because she had mentioned that she was from Philadelphia. And um, I'm like, my ears perked up. And, and I went up to talk to her afterwards. And my co- my first cousin happened to follow me to Florida. And he mentioned my name in our little kibitzing after the meeting, you know, when I'm trying to put the, put my game out on this girl. And because um, she was freaking smoking, she was smoking, and and I, I I'm up there, you know, talking her up, and he says, "Yo, Jonas, what, let's we gotta go or something." And she says, "Wait a second. And she looks at me real close. And she says, "I know who you are. We went to summer camp together as children, right, in outside of Philadelphia, and and you're the first boy I ever kissed." Oh my God! You have got to be kidding me. That's the story she tells and sticks to it, bro. I'm telling you, that's the story she tells and sticks to it. And she's a couple years younger than me, and I was actually bunkmates with her brother, and I knew her then as a scrawny little kid. You know, she was seven years old. You know, and what a woman she grew up to be. I'm like, well, yo, you need to go away and stay away. I'm busy. I got to learn how to stay clean. I don't have time for this. And what's your phone number? And um, (laughs) we managed. We worked really hard together. To, to carry on an early recovery relationship. And I'll tell you what, if you want to learn how to work steps and traditions in your life, get in a relationship. Because if you don't, you're going to get buried. That's for sure. <laughs> so was that, wait a minute, did you actually kiss her? 
At nine, I don't remember kissing her at nine, but I started making out with her as soon as I could. Let me tell you what. Uh, <laughs> that is she, had, you know how they say she had what I wanted. <laughs> so, how much clean time did you have before you hooked up with her? Seven months. Oh, well, well that's not bad. Seven that's months. Not bad. Okay. She right. she had. I think she has. She has. Um. But see, she just celebrated thirty years in May. Oh man. Uh, May first or May 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 no May twenty ninth May thirty somewhere her anniversary just she just celebrated this year thirty years, so she's got like you know a year and a half on me or something. That is magnificent. So it's all good. And again, like I said, we 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 worked hard with outside help to make this this marriage. You know, we subsequently got engaged and got married and um brought a child into the world together. So that made number four for me, and um. I, she became a mom, and I went to graduate school and became a therapist. That's amazing. Unbelievably right. amazing. That is a great story. It's a really good Hollywood story, and she tells it every year when we give each other medallions. <laughs> she tells the story every year, and 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 then she starts talking about, you know, I knew him before. You know, he had a mustache and a receding hairline, which she also happens to bring up on a repeated basis annually <laughs> about how much, how left, how little hair I have left. As I continue to like grow old gracefully, and um, it, you know, and, and it's evolved. The relationship is always evolving, and it's you know, moving forward. It stops, it starts, it's ups, it valleys and peaks and stuff. And um, you know, it's happening. And so, how how long did it take for you guys to get married? We got married in eighty nine, August of eighty nine, and then our son Jay was born in ninety one. Wow, February. And it was like, yeah, I mean, I was 34, you know, and already had kids and stuff. And she was, she's a couple years younger than me. So she just turned 60. Um, and, and so she was like, you know, baby time, you know, you want to get married to me? We're having a baby. I'm like, absolutely. Yeah. Like, what are you, are you crazy? I can't, I can't even take care of myself. They told me in treatment, I was immature. I was so immature. I was still in freaking pampers. What are you talking about? And and anyway, like I said, we I recovery. All I did was accelerate, accelerate in like a rocket through recovery and growth and and self development and trying to make up for twenty years in ten minutes. Now, what about your relationship with your your other three kids? Well, my ex wife saw the credibility and and she was always very supportive, and so they started to come to visit, you know, in the summertime. And um, we developed some relationship and they got to know their dad, you know, and, and their new stepmom. And then one day, um, she, my ex-wife called me up and asked me if we would be interested in having custody of, of Jonathan, my, my middle, my oldest son. He's now 34. And um, so we took custody of Jonathan. He was eight years old. And he came to live with us. And then um, a couple years later, his sister, Ariella, she's now 36. She came to live with us. So we had custody. And Dawn, my wife, she, she raised those two kids, you know, from childhood on up. Um, and my other son stayed up north with my, my ex-wife. And she had another child named Sachi. So we, the kids were split up. And, you know, we had two families. We had a, a re blended recovery family because my ex-wife and my current wife talked and raised the kids together jointly and um, she would come and stay with us and they went through high school and college and all that stuff. It was, it's been really very cooperative and very communicative, man. That is another miracle. They all, those three kids, I mean, one's a pharmacist, one's a social worker with a master's degree. One's, a, one's, um, you know, in business with me with an MBA. So, you know, they're, they're awesome. And my young one, Jay is finding his pathway, um, you know, through his own drug addiction. 
So he's still, you know, he's still coming out of the weeds. Uh, okay. How old is he? 25. Okay. All right. Well, that sounds about right, man. I mean. Yep. Yep. He's getting close. He, he's clean right now in the halfway house. So that's a good thing. All right. Okay. So then, you know, we've, you've got 27, what is it? 27, 28 years coming up now? 29. Okay. So you're coming up on 29 years clean, right? So that's the first few years. So then after that, and then you get your degree, how long did it take for you to get your PhD and your other certificates? Oh, well, you know, the man, I finished the master's. At, I entered a two-year program. It took me six because I had to work two jobs and, and do the family thing. Right. So it took, you know, that took a little bit longer than I wanted. So I, I finished that in 96. I got licensed as a therapist. Um, then my father passed away mm. and I was able to go out on my own with a little bit of an inheritance. Um, and I started going in business and, and, you know, we had started the housing and, um, you know, it just took off from there. I got, you know, made some really good decisions as far as investments and, um, being able to make some money and the website, you know, did very, very well and, um, financially and cause it's all, my whole life is recovery. Right. You know, so my identity is all wrapped up in that. I went back and got a master's. I mean, a, a, a PhD, because I wanted to give the sober systems credibility that a doctor is promoting this tool. You know, doctor, I mean, you call somebody, you say doctor or something, they answer the phone. It's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. You suddenly have instant respect because you have, a, you know, doctor. So, okay, I should just wear a lab coat or something. So it worked. It, it, I, you know, and so I got this, this PhD um, at, down there in, in St. Kitts Island through International University. And, um, you know, it, it, I had to go and really work hard to make that happen. And, again, running businesses and doing the doctorate. So, um, I, you know, I, I've been using that to my advantage to, to get credibility for these, these apps I'm creating, um, again, to make a dent and to contribute in a large scale for the least amount of money, if any. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, God, I was just about to ask you a question, and I, and I spaced. Oh, You'd spent time, well, you'd, you've been in jail, you've been incarcerated. Did you ever do any, you know, serious time? Do you have, did you have any felonies, you know, going into recovery? Let's say that I never got caught for the felonies I committed. Um, all time, all time incarcerated is serious time. Let's qualify that. Okay, fair all enough. All time is serious. Fair enough. Um, the length of time I'm very fortunate. The longest amount of time is like, you know, short spurt, many short spurts. Um, I think, I don't even know what the longest amount of time I was there, maybe three weeks, but um, three minutes is forever when you're locked up. Okay. Because, <laughs> you know, you've got a damn heroin habit. You're going into withdrawals. You have nothing. You have nothing to work with. Nothing. And and um, so so it's really, and it would make an imprint for about 15 minutes as soon as the door opened. I'd go get a cigarette and go shoot for, look for a bag of dope. Um, cause again, you know, when your self-esteem is up your ass, it, it, it doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't make an imprint like that. And so if there's no assistance, I mean, I'm trying to figure out a way to take my coaching curriculum into the prison system so people can start to look at, you know, uh, uh doing something productive other than, uh, in addition to the education are able to access and, and get out and, and cause that's what people are doing in there. There's always somebody that rises to be the one to go to. There's always a go-to person, you know, that's the best listener, um, and, and, and that's what we want to give them the tools to be able to, to, to do that when they get out and have some productivity and contribute. And they want to contribute and stop being a taker. 
So, um, again, you know, that's my belief about any incarceration time. I, I only did county jails because I, I never wanted to be away from drugs that long and risk being away from drugs that long to, to do something really stupid, like rob the damn pharmacy van, you know, when they're delivering the Dilaudid's because right. that was a good idea. <laughs> you, you get caught doing that, you're going to go away, and then you can't use drugs anymore. Uh, so, like, why would you want to do that? So, anyway, that's, that's how my logic thought. I would get somebody else to do it. That's the way I think. <laughs> You didn't share it. Oh, well, you were a smart addict, I guess. Uh, I can't be that. I don't know about smart addict. Smart enough to not self-sabotage to the extent that I've seen other people do. And I got very fortunate, you know, and I also ran fast. Um, you know, so, you know, I bolted out of pharmacies just in the nick of time before I would get, you know, a collar doing stupid stuff. Yeah, you were you were just more of a you you just you just recognized the potential consequences, and you would just send the guy that was dumb enough to go in, not really thinking about them. Well, I don't know if he was dumb or, or smart. He just didn't give a care. I know. I had a cousin that was our role model in the family that everybody measured their addiction against, and if you weren't like him, you weren't that bad. <laughs> okay, and he was bad. He went he went to that place in Kentucky. Um, for the heroin addicts, he, it wasn't Leavenworth. What the hell's the name of that place? Um, it was the very, very first. There were two early treatments that the government started back in the '60s for heroin addiction, and he was already doing it then. And and I know my father sent him down there. And um, God, I don't the name of that place just escapes me. But it's very, very famous. And they actually had started a program down there called Addicts Anonymous. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you look at the history of of the evolution of twelve step work. Um, and there was a, a fellowship for a brief period of time, but they could never get the egos out of AA and NA to merge, you know, to be one fellowship of addicts, addicts anonymous. Um, so he was there. And, and again, when you, when you're doing that as a precedent for your family and you're the oldest one in the family as the oldest, oldest male, and you're running the streets and you're already getting arrested and doing time and uh, getting out and doing it all over again. If you weren't like him, you were okay. Right. Right. You were okay. Right, right. You went to work. You know, yeah, you use drugs and you got in trouble, but it wasn't what you weren't like him, and and so you were good. Yeah. So that's how that went. There's so many of us that you know our trip or or our distance from getting into treatment or finding twelve step recovery, a lot of times is based on looking at somebody else and going, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. Yeah, yeah. It takes us that much longer to get back in. Oh man, Jonas, what a roller coaster ride of a story, my brother. Yeah, it's a great story. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> it's a good story to talk about. I love the story of you and your wife. <laughs> it's just. Yeah. Oh, yeah, she loves that one. And it's true. I mean, the scary part is, oh, wait, it gets better. So when I go to ask her to marry me, right? Because, like, first of all, it was either get married or break up. So we broke up because I couldn't decide if I was really ready, you know, because it was really early in recovery. And I knew there's something wrong with this picture. So I ran away and I lasted a month and I, I went back to, to chase her down. So first I go to her mother and I asked, you know, she was a single single mom. And I go and ask, you know, permission because I'm you know, my big career move at the time. I'm driving a taxi. That's what I'm doing. And um, I'm going to go ask her mother if I can marry her daughter. And she looks at me and says, well, whatever, you know, <laughs> her mother, God bless my mother-in-law. So, uh, it's, uh, okay, great. And so I go track this, this my, my bride down, and she's at a dance at, at, at the clubhouse. There's a Valentine's Day dance. 
and I t- ask her outside to go for a walk and there's a big full moon. You know, I'm setting the scene like like it's a Hollywood thing. And I'm telling you, it was really like this. It's a full moon and I'm asking her to get married outside an N.A. clubhouse <laughs> under a full moon, you know, with, with like a year clean or something. You know, that's how it went. Oh, and she said yes. And yeah, she talked about <laughs> dumb, right? <laughs> Wait, wait, what do you do? You drive a taxi? What? <laughs> How many kids do you have? Three? What? And um, she didn't care. She, I mean, she really, she really loved me. She really, you know, believed that that's the way it was going to go. And so, um, and, and we, I'm telling you, we, like, relationships require work. Yeah. And, and, and we worked really, really hard for a really long time yeah. to make it successful. That's beautiful. I love it, man. Absolutely beautiful story. Absolutely beautiful. But again, you know, in that kind of a situation, a lot of it boils down to, especially for women, they're so intuitive. Uh, not always, obviously, but there's an energy there. They're like, this guy's going to do something, right? And you did. I yeah, mean, she, yeah. she, well, she gambled, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. But I'd say she yeah, won. I was, really, I, I was pretty risky. <laughs> I told her, I said, Do you ever see me in the bathroom with a needle in my arm? Take the money, take the credit cards, and run. Run. Absolutely. No question about it. Okay. The hospital my cousin went to was called Lexington. Ah, okay. Okay. I was just pulling it up myself and I was like... It's in Kentucky. Lexington, Kentucky. That's what it was. Lexington Drug Treatment Center. That's right. It was one of the very first ones. And that was the early onset of the heroin addiction from the Vietnam War. Okay. And so when this happened, this is, you know, recycles. If you look at William White as our spokesperson and and our observer of, of... of society and the response of, of society to the drug addiction it starts way back when he wrote a great book called slaying the dragon and it's a history it's a compendium it's a history book of america's response to substance abuse dating back to like the 1700s fascinating fascinating book and lexington is in there obviously and that's where addicts anonymous was mentioned and so forth um william white and he's got like a website william white papers it's the guy is prolific a prolific writer. I mean, if there's anybody that's my hero and role model, is that if I can only write the way he does, it's just phenomenal. Um, so this is a great book, and in there um, it talks about that, that that one particular intervention. All right. Well, Jonas, it's time to start closing up, buddy. I'm going to ask you some questions about your early recovery, and I want you to respond with inspiring and insightful answers you can share for our newcomers. Are you ready? Go ahead. All right. Well, we've already covered already three of the questions. One of them was what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery. And it was that moment where that guy asked you, come back when you're clean or told you, come back when you're clean. I'm assuming, right? Yes, that was a, that was, that was a, a, a block. That, but I don't remember. Le- what was keeping me out there was um, a, a desire to be numb. Um, my shame... A piece of what I didn't share was my ex-wife's, um, she has a mental illness, she has a diagnosis, and and, and it was horrific for me to m- negotiate without drugs, um, having my children in her custody. And I couldn't, I had no skill set in that, so it kept me using over and over and over, day after day after day, um, because I was, hor- I was horrified um, about what could possibly happen to my children's safety. So... Go, go and, and wait, well, to top it off, my mother bought her the lawyer to make that happen. So you talk about anger and resentment. You know, I was like, you got to be kidding me. You're going to give my children, our children, to, to an active, mentally ill individual who's not stable and hurts themselves. Again, and instead of me who caretakes them while she's in the hospital because I use freaking drugs. Are you at, Are you all crazy? <laughs> and they all said, yes, that's what we're doing. 
and you better get deal with it. And, and I didn't. I didn't deal with it. Oh, man. Wow. That is absolutely wow. It's tough, man. It's tough. You know, you're dealing with all these feelings and emotions, and you, you really don't know how you're going to deal with them without drugs. I didn't deal with them. No. I, I, That's what I'm saying. Way, That's what I'm I, saying. You just kept... You, I, it, was, it, was, it was drugs or nothing. It was drugs or, or it was suicide. I mean, it was just... It was just un- it was just horrible, you know the situation, and and they, and and she did a decent. I mean, she did the best she could. She was not evil. She you know, but she's she's crazy. And I don't want to say that in a derogatory way. I mean, she's she has manic episodes, and she wouldn't take her medicine, so she wasn't stable. And then and then all bets are off. Right. You know that's that was the issue, and I was like, I had no control. I was completely unmanageable. You know, powerless and completely unmanageable. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so the number two, there was another one you covered, and the question is, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery, when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? And you also went through that as well, right? Is there anything else you wanted to add to that? I was standing at the gate, but I didn't really connect that I was powerless over drugs and alcohol. Everybody knows you're powerless over drugs and alcohol. You just stick them in your body, and they change the way that you think and you feel. That's why you use them. Um, so the powerlessness wasn't the issue. I had to learn about unmanageability and what happens with or without drugs and the unmanageability of my life. Um, so that, that, I called that episode, you know, that aha moment. If there's such an epiphany of I was done, the, the obsession to use was gone. It was lifted. And now it was just a matter of doing the footwork. So that's that's where it was, you know, and it just I had a series of those going forward. Right. You know, because they seemed to be everywhere after that. Absolutely. And then you also mentioned uh, I always ask, what is the do you have a favorite book that you would recommend to our newcomers? Well, I mentioned that Slaying the Dragon the compendium. That's a history book of America's response. Um, and, and then, of course, there was the I mean, it's, all I did was I got kicked out of the treatment centers because I only wanted to borrow the counselor's books. You know, can I borrow that book? Can I borrow that book? And they're, no, you can't have that book yet. You go to this. I'm like, why can't I read the book? Is it was it in English or is it in another language? Why can't I have the book? And and, and so I would fight with them, and they would say, you need you need to move on. You can't. So they said, well, what is that book? You know, and I wanted to learn. I wanted. I was thirsty. I was like, you know. So anyway, you look over their shoulder where they were talking to me, and looking at their book rack. <laughs> That's I You had the oddest experiences getting sober, didn't you? Yeah, well, I listened to all this bullshit in the meetings. You know, this guy would show up and he's like, you know, my name is so-and-so and I hit anybody today. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what kind of program is this? <laughs> I didn't hit anybody today. Oh. You know, I think he still had it. I think he still carried his gun with him, though. You know, one of those motorcycle guys. Oh, yeah. What the fuck? What? <laughs> yeah. Then I went to one of these other meetings and they said, you can't share that here. You got to go to another fellowship. I looked at him. And I was like, what do you mean? This is everybody. What are you talking about? I can't. I left the meeting. I never went back to, I never went it's back there. It's unbelievable, man. It's un- uh, some old dude. Oh. Some old dude said that out loud. I want to, I, 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 I sat in the van. They would take me to this main meeting and I would sit in the van the whole time. I was like, I'm not going in there. No. And I don't even want to, and I'm, I'm, I'm angry at you. You're taking my money to give me something that I can get free in the community. Where's the freaking door? Get me out of here. Oh my God. Absolutely. It, Priceless. Yeah. Okay. So number four, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? Stay teachable. Beautiful. I love it, man. I love it. And if you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would it be? The decision you made to get clean, make that same one every morning when you wake up. Man, 
Gold. I love it. Wow. Jonas, man, this has been an amazing interview. Thank you so much. I was, it's always fun to talk about something you're passionate about. I did one of these last week, and, and, the, and, and the guy says, well, what do you do for fun? I said, I'm doing it, bro. This is it. This is what I do. This is, this is my fun. This is the best. Well, tell our listeners what's the best way for them to reach you, to find the Flex Deck, your website, you know, every, every way that they can get in touch with you. Okay, great. I appreciate that. Um, so again, my name's uh, my name's Jonas. Uh, my my professional my professional uh, pseudonym is Dr. Harold Jonas, um, and I have a number of different websites. Uh, there's sober.com, which is of course the easiest one and the best brand on the internet to find your best clinical and financial fit. There's Jonas at sobernetwork.com. That's an email that is very received um, and I'm very responsive. Uh, we've got Facebook pages and Twitter uh, at RecZone, for instance. Um, I got a direct cell phone number, which I'll give to everybody. And anybody's welcome to call at 561-441-5004. And, of course, if you want to look at the app, which I please do, FlexDeck, D-E-K, FlexDeck.net. And from there, you can look at the app, uh, download it at the App Store or the Play Store. FlexDeck Wellness Edition is currently in the market and available. Um, and then the Mad Edition will be rolling out November 1st. So you'll have those two to choose from. And so those two um, apps are going to be there. Uh, again, the, the one, the wellness, the wellness management model is in there now. FlexDeck, F-L-E-X-D-E-K. Beautiful, beautiful. Excellent. All right. Well, we have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.